1 Corinthians chapter 11. The church at Corinth, as we've seen, was a diverse lot. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, there's a lot to be said for diversity. church in Corinth was diverse in terms of religious backgrounds. You had people who had grown up Jewish uh, with varying degrees of observance, most likely. You had people who had grown up pagan. You probably, because Corinth was basically a a new city being, being rebuilt, you probably had people... Uh, who were from the area and those who were from elsewhere. Uh, Corinth being a major port city, you probably had people who drifted in for one reason or another and ended up sticking around. So it would have been uh, ethnically diverse. Corinth was all, Corinthian church was also socioeconomically diverse. Uh, and we know this um, because people like Mary and, and Jen are reading their Bibles assiduously on their phones. Um, you all are welcome to do your Bibles in the pews as you wish, but we know that they're diverse because as Paul has been addressing different people in Corinth, he's addressed some people who clearly have some means, people who have the ability to travel, people whose jobs take them uh, around from place to place, and uh, some, so some people were merchants, uh, there are some people who were also on the other end, there were people in the Corinthian church, who were slaves. And this is creating a big problem in terms of how this particular aspect of the diversity of the Corinthian church is being handled when it comes to the Eucharist. And complicating this is, uh, as we discussed back in chapter 7, likely this letter is being written at a time when there was a famine in the Roman Empire. And uh, for a port city like Corinth, uh, what that means is that uh, even if there's famine locally or even regionally, you can always get stuff. Because in a port city, if there are people who are able to buy something, there will be people who will get it there so that they can sell it to them, right? So in a port city, uh, you're, you're going to have the people of means are going to have the access to things that other people wouldn't be able to get their hands on. But what that also means is that those who do not have means, those who are the have-nots, they're going to be very aware of the fact that they can't get their hands on even basic things that they need to survive. Uh, Port cities tend to be very sensitive to fluctuations in the commodity market. Which, again, means that you've got some folks in the Corinthian church who are quite comfortable and others who are barely scraping by and are probably quite literally hungry a good part of the time. This becomes a huge, a huge problem when it comes to the question of the Lord's Supper. Now, nowadays in the church, when we celebrate the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper, it tends to be a symbolic meal. I mean, occasionally, like I know in, sometimes in house church, people actually have a, a whole meal and they will... Um, celebrate the Eucharist as part of it. Uh, if you have ever been to a Passover Seder, um, where you have sort of the the uh, the reading of the um, uh, the, uh, the you know the the um, oh my goodness I'm blanking on it. What's the the thing you read at a Seder? The, not a Seder. That's a prayer book. It's help me out. Haggadah. Yeah, the, the Haggadah. Yeah. So you you will you'll read these. You know. Why is this night different from all the others? And, and so forth. So you have 
elements of the of the evening that are are prescribed, where the language is prescribed, and you have certain uh, times when you will eat or drink all together, but you also just have dinner, right? Um, and so that probably was more the way that that uh, the Eucharist was celebrated in the early church. We we do it differently now, uh, but it, in Corinth, these people were really um, screwing it up. So Paul says in verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. As we talked about last week, when Paul starts off chapter 11 saying, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. It could be Paul actually was praising them for some things. It could be Paul was being passive aggressive. It could be that Paul uh, was um, lying. Uh, but it also, uh, it, but but either way, it certainly is the case that now when he talks about the way the Corinthians are celebrating the Eucharist, he is not at all impressed. In fact, he says, your meetings do more harm than good. Okay, just back up for a second and imagine a pastor saying, you would be better off not going to church. I would be better off if you didn't go to church. The world would be a better place if you didn't go to church the way you go to church. Because in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Now, as we talked about earlier on, at the very beginning of the letter, Paul tees up this issue of factions within the church. The fact that there are, uh, there are, are different teams. <clears throat> you got one team saying, well, I'm Paul's guy and I'm Apollos' guy. You have uh, people following certain teachers or identifying themselves with certain uh, movements. But you also probably, uh, most likely, especially in an honor-shame culture like you had in the first century in the Roman Empire, you had people who identified themselves with the socioeconomic faction or group that they would have been part of. People who were wealthy would have been proud to be wealthy. Uh, If you were associated with somebody who was wealthy or powerful that would, in turn, increase your social standing. So maybe you weren't yourself wealthy, but you had a wealthy patron. Uh, You owed that person uh, a certain amount of loyalty. You owed that person allegiance. You owed that person honor. Uh, If you were an artist, for example, uh, you would be expected to produce for that person. But by being attached to that person, by being associated with him, you would then be uh, of a higher social standing because you were because you were uh, associated with somebody who was wealthy. Likewise, if you are a slave, and plenty of people in the Corinthian church were, uh, then you might have a higher social standing depending on the prominence of the person that you served uh, and perhaps depending on your status within the household. In fact, uh, you know, it, it was possible to be a slave, but to be a person of great wealth and, frankly, to have, be a person of considerable power if you were, for example, running the household for a, an especially wealthy or powerful person. Uh, doesn't make it okay to be a slave, but it does mean that there were gradations there. The, the, the point being that there are people, as there usually are, the people at the top and then there are the people at the bottom. And in this situation... It seems that those differences were being exploited, right? Paul says there are divisions among you, and NIV translates it to some extent, I believe it. You could also say, boy, how could that be? I can't possibly believe that would be happening. Again, and, and reading in the, in the commentaries, some of the, 
some of the writers or uh, scholars are like, well, that would mean Paul was being really, you know, sarcastic and biting here. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul was, was furious about what he heard about that was going on. He said, when you come together, in fact, you think you're taking communion, you think you are celebrating the Eucharist, you think you're having the Lord's Supper, that is not at all what's going on. It is not a valid Eucharist. And he's not saying it's not a valid Eucharist because you didn't say the right words or the person didn't hold his hands the right way or you didn't have the right kind of, of, of wine or bread. He's saying you are not eating the Lord's Supper because when you eat, you've got some of you going ahead and eating without waiting for anybody else. Which means one person remains hungry and another one is drunk. Right? So the way, now, you know, back in the first century in Corinth, they didn't have beautiful church buildings like this to meet in. That came along centuries later. You would meet in homes, and you probably would meet, your house church would meet in the biggest house that was available. And, but, but even a, a large, wealthy household would have room uh, in, in a central sort of atrium area, maybe for 20 or 30 people, um, so you, you could fit a, a house church there. You probably couldn't fit the whole of the Corinthian church all together at one place at one time, but you could certainly fit a house church there comfortably. But it's, apparently what was happening was that the whole house church wasn't meeting in that central area. What probably was going on was that the host and the host's closest friends would have been in what was called the triclinium or the dining room. And in the dining room, the way people would dine is they would recline. They would kind of lie down on their side. There'd be a table in the middle, and you could fit nine people in a triclinium. You have three people on each of three benches, and they would be attended by servants and others. Um, and uh, and uh, as was customary, you know, the host would be served the best uh, the best bits of the food, and the people closest to the host would be served good stuff. And then basically, whatever was left over, you know, other people in the household might be able to get their hands on. In fact, uh, what is quite likely is that you had people in the church who were slaves of the people who were hosting the agape meal, the love meal, the, the Eucharist, who had to wait on their bosses, wait on their superiors, while their superiors ate and drank and drank and drank. And then, when they were done... Then, and then after they cleaned up and everything, then they might have a chance to participate as well. And you can imagine, slaves who were serving in other households would have had to take care of their masters for their dinners, and only when they were done serving them and then cleaning up could they even come out to the house church meeting in order to have the Eucharist, which means that the wealthiest and the, the most uh, prominent people in the church would eat and drink whatever they wanted, all they wanted. And then by the time everybody else got there, what they had left was the crumbs. Now, Miss Manners would obviously not approve of this, um, although in some sense this was entirely appropriate given the social conventions of the time. But the problem, of course, is that this absolutely does violence to the body of Christ. Paul says, look, seriously, are you telling me you don't have your own houses that you can eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Do you have contempt 
for the church of God and as you humiliate those who have nothing. You think about it. If, if, you're, if you're the last person to show up for house church and all that's left is a few crumbs of bread, a little bit of wine left over from somebody's cup who was finally passed out and couldn't finish what he was drinking. And Paul says, you, you, want me to, you, you want me to praise you? For this, but presumably in, among the people who are writing to him, we're saying, hey, Paul, guess what? We are celebrating the Eucharist all the time. It's awesome. We do it at somebody's house. It's great. And then he's hearing from somebody else. Yeah, you know what that looks like? It looks like the people who have power and wealth satisfying themselves, putting this veneer of religiosity over it and humiliating the people who are already humiliated in that culture. So Paul says, what, you want a gold star? You want me to pat you on the head for this? You've got to be kidding me. No, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And this is the place where Paul gives us the, the words of institution. His language style changes. He's very likely pass, literally passing on what he had received uh, that the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me likewise after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood so do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me which that what that means Paul says is that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup whenever you celebrate the Eucharist whenever you have communion together whenever you gather for the Lord's Supper you're actually proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. The word for proclaim could also mean preach. The Eucharist, the communion, preaches. It proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we often think of coming together to celebrate the Eucharist as an opportunity to worship Jesus. And it is an opportunity to give thanks to him for his sacrifice for us. And it is that. We think of it as a time for the church to come together all at the same table. And it is that. Don't hear me saying it's not. But there's an aspect of it that we often miss, which is the missional aspect of the Eucharist. I.e., every time we take the bread and the cup together, we are preaching the gospel. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So, When we take the Eucharist, it's not just a religious experience that we have. It's preaching to anybody who is not a believer, who is present for it, but it's also preaching to anybody who is not present but hears about it. And imagine what that would be like for a servant, a slave, who goes back to their household at the end of the night. Oh, you went to church. How was your church service? And what's he going to say? It was great. The people there, you know, we got rich people, we got poor people, but everybody was together. We celebrated the Eucharist together. They had some really good wine, stuff I would never be able to drink. And we all shared it together, and it was just, there was a sense that we were all equal, that the ground was level at the foot of the cross, right? What a great story that would be. But that's not the story that was getting told in Corinth, right? These slaves would come home, how was church? Well, it sucked, frankly. I got there, and it was like, being at work. You know, I had a bunch of rich people and they were fat and drunk and happy and, and you know, we basically scrounged up whatever we could and, you know, the, they 
you know, stumbled through some prayers, but it was basically, you know, they basically had a dinner party and, and, you know, we had to come in at the end of it. It was embarrassing, frankly. What kind of message does that give? What kind of testimony to the gospel is that? So what that means, Paul says, is that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and in fact a number have fallen asleep, i.e. have died. Now, the way this is often interpreted is, is that before you take communion, you need to like, think really, really hard about whatever sins you've committed and make sure you ask God to forgive them before you take the Eucharist. Right? In fact, uh, in some churches, like, they want to make sure, people want to make sure you tell them a week in advance that there's going to be communion the next week, especially if you're not celebrating every week, so that like, you can be ready. You know, like you can, you, Saturday night, you can make sure you, know, you clean the slate, get up Sunday morning, maybe you, know, you cuss somebody out mentally as you're going through the drive-thru, you clear that up so that when it's time for Eucharist, you're good. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not taking the Eucharist in an unworthy manner. I don't think when he talks about discerning the body, he is saying that you need to properly recognize the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Some people would say, oh, if you only think that this is a memorial meal, if you only say, we're just doing this in remembrance of Christ, but there's nothing really going on in the bread or the wine or in us gathered together, uh, so they would say, you're not properly discerning the body, so you're theologically off, so it's not really the Eucharist. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Tempting as it would be uh, to want to wield that as a club against people who are not recognizing the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, No, I think what Paul is talking about when he talks about discerning the body, eating and drinking without discerning the body, is he's talking about the problem of of celebrating the Eucharist together in a way that absolutely runs roughshod over the unity of the body of Christ by embarrassing and humiliating those in the Corinthian church who are needy. He's saying you're doing violence to the integrity of the body when you get together and you have church in the way that you have church, in a way that enables some of you simply to enjoy your luxuries, enjoy your status, in a way that makes it all the more of a reminder for those who don't have those things that they never will and that their place in the society is firmly fixed. In a lot of ways, Paul is, is very much channeling the prophets in this kind of thing. Oftentimes, people will read the prophets and their denunciations of the rich living in luxury, and they say, well, yeah, the problem obviously is wealth, and the problem is economic inequality. That's, that's not what they're saying at all. The, the problem is not that people have material means. The problem is not that there are haves and have-nots. What we read in, in Torah, in fact, is God, God says, I don't want there to be hungry people among you. So when there are poor people, this is what you do. God is not disappointed in his people when some folks are in need. He knows that's going to happen. And the way he deals with it is he blesses some people abundantly so that they can share generously with those who don't have. Right? There are some people who have means 
and they just keep them to themselves and they, they don't share and they're, they're just for them. But then there are others who do as God commands and says God has blessed us with this place, God has blessed us with these resources, God has blessed us with this ability and so I'm going to share it generously with my brothers and sisters for the sake of the kingdom. Right? And, and the, the way this worked out in Torah was that God's people, as they were blessed, were expected to share generously with those who were in need so that there would not be anybody who goes hungry. You also had in Torah a situation where there was not economic disparity in the one kind of tax. Anybody remember which tax that was that was the same for everybody? It was the temple tax. Everybody, rich, poor, fat, skinny, young, old, everybody had to pay the same tax for the administration of services in the temple because everybody's equal before God. There's a place where Torah clearly taught everybody is equal before God. But Torah also teaches, and the prophets absolutely dinged Israel for for their failure to, to follow this, that those who have means are to use those means in order to provide for those who don't. The problem, as the prophet said, is that the people who had means were actually using those to exploit those who did not have, have wealth. They would use their power not to serve those who needed help, but in fact to take advantage of them. They could go to court and ensure that their needy neighbor was, was getting, uh, uh, getting justice, was being taken care of. But instead, they would bribe the judge to further exploit and harm that person. And when that happens inside the body of God's people, then those who are doing that are doing violence to the integrity of the body of Christ. He says, you know, in verse 31... If we judged ourselves, we wouldn't come under judgment, right? Obviously, you all think what you're doing is perfectly fine. In fact, some of you, kind of like the, the guy who's sleeping with his stepmother, you're like, hey, Paul, check this out. Guess what we're doing? You, you think this is a terrific idea. Obviously, if you're judging yourself, you would come out with, with a, a 100% and a gold stars and all that stuff. Guess what, though? You're not the one who get to, gets to judge. It's when we're judged by the Lord that we find that we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Once again, as he so often does, Paul ratchets up the stakes. He says, this is not just about how you're having church, but this has a lot to do with how you end up when you appear before the Lord. So then, my brothers, when you get together to eat, please, not just because it's polite, wait for each other. Right? I don't care whether you have organic, free-range communion wafers, I, 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 but whatever you have, wait for each other. And if anybody is so hungry that they can't stand to wait, then, you know, eat beforehand. You know, chances are, if you are that hungry, 
if you're really that hungry, you probably can't eat beforehand because you can't afford to. So Paul here is speaking to people who say, oh, I'm so hungry, when they're really not. So let them eat at home. So when you eat together, it may not result in judgment. When I come, I'm going to have more to say about this. (laughs) But for now, this is what I want you to hear. Paul is jealous for the integrity of the church. Paul is jealous for the unity of the body of Christ. And we're going to talk more about this next week when it comes to the way God cobbles the church together. But oftentimes it is specifically in worship, in the way that we gather to glorify God, that the ways we fail to do that and the ways that we undermine the unity of the body can be most evident. I am not aware of a problem here where people are not waiting for each other when it's time to eat. I'm not aware of a situation at the church where people with means are humiliating those without. In fact, what I see is people being very generous and gracious to one another. I see people sharing their homes and making vehicles available. I see people like Keith Peters, who last year came over in the middle of a snowstorm to fix my snowblower because he knew how to do that, and I definitely did not. And I think if I had tried, something would have blown up. So it's a beautiful thing when we see that happen. But we also have to be alert. Because I'm sure that the Corinthians didn't start off saying, hey, you know what would be a good idea? Let's try to humiliate our poor neighbors and let's try to exalt ourselves. And in so doing, let's do this Eucharist thing so badly that it would be better off if we didn't do it and that we actually aren't even taking the Eucharist together. Right? Let's, let's, plan, let's get together Wednesday night and plan how we can do that. No, I'm sure they started off with the best of intentions. We have to be alert and pay attention that when we meet together, it may not result in judgment. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that when we take your body and blood together, that it would always be, not simply because it always is, preaching of the gospel, but that it would be something that preaches the gospel well. That all of us who gather would be reminded of your death for our sake. That anyone who is not already part of the community, when they come and see this, that they would see that we celebrate to honor you, not to gratify ourselves. And we pray that as we share that with our neighbors, with our coworkers, as other people become aware, that they would know us as a community that worships you and loves the things that you love. Pray that this would be to your glory and to the edification of your church. Amen.